Please pray with me. Father, the preacher up here has no authority beyond which is in your word. And let uh, me speak as such, and let the power of your truths infiltrate the deep crevices and thick walls of our often stubborn hearts. And let your spirit be more gracious and show its power as you change lives with the gospel, with the message of the cross, that you would create for yourself renewed humanity under the likeness of your image, and that they would then uh, live in such a way that glorifies you and prioritizes your name above even their very own agendas. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So, friends, we're continuing in our series, the book of Acts, and today we are moving on to Acts chapter 16. We're just starting Acts chapter 16, and let me just recap to you what Acts chapter 15 was about, and I'll try to make this short, but we do have to know the details about what happened in Acts chapter 15 if we want to make sense of Acts chapter 16, okay? So what happened in Acts chapter 15? Well, if you remember, there's a big argument that happened between two groups of people in the early church church infighting. Surprise, surprise, right? It's always happened. It probably always will continue to be. Between who? The the Jewish circumcision group and the non-Jewish or Gentile uncircumcised, non-circumcision group. The circumcised Jewish Christians, let's call them the circumcision group, told the uncircumcised non-Jewish Christians to get like really saved they don't only have to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, but they also have to get circumcised. So if they believe in Christ, they're like 80% saved, but to get like 100% saved, they also have to get circumcised. That's what they're telling them, and that's totally wrong, okay? The Bible is clear in that there should not be any additional requirement for salvation apart from what Christ did for you on the cross. So what was the solution? Well, we see Paul and Barnabas got tons of Christian leaders together in Jerusalem to talk about this issue. And they all got together, and they decided that, no, we shouldn't make these non-Jewish, uncircumcised Christians to get circumcised. We shouldn't force them to do that. That's wrong, okay? No to circumcision or circumcising non-Jewish Christians in order to get saved. But, they said, this decision might upset the Jewish circumcised group. So what's the solution? Well, Paul and Barnabas told the non-Jews that are uncircumcised, say, look, might there be other culturally Jewish things that you could do in order to appease the circumcision group? Because we got to sin under circumcision. Like, that's, that's, that's where we draw the line, okay? No additional requirement for salvation. But in order to just not be so offensive to them, are there other things you could do? And they came up with three uh, specifically Jewish uh, tr- traditions that they could still obey. One of them, if you remember, was don't eat meat with blood on it, so don't eat medium rare steak. Two, uh, don't eat meat from an animal that died by strangling. Um, and, and the third one, I'm forgetting now, the third is don't eat meat that's been offered to idols. Like if there's a piece of meat and it's been offered to an idol temple, Paul said, look, it's not a big deal. Like it's actually, you can eat it. Actually, it's fine. But if it offends them, just don't do it. Okay. All right, so that's the solution. That's chapter 15. The church leaders save the day by coming up with a biblical yet very creative and unifying SOP, standard operating procedure, 
that both protected gospel purity and gospel unity at the same time. And that's great. We need more of those. But here's the thing about good SOPs. No matter how good they are, they're only as good as the people who run it. And you know this to be true, not only in church, but even in your own companies or wherever you work, right? The operating procedures seem flawless on paper. They're on spot. But things are falling apart. <laughs> and you're asking, why? What's going on? Well, because the people running it aren't, aren't good at, at doing it, okay? And this is what chapter 16 is about. If chapter 15 is about the kind of SOP that churches should have in order to protect gospel purity, gospel unity, gospel mission, chapter 15, chapter 16 is about the kind of people that the church needs to have in order to protect gospel purity, unity, and mission, all right? Okay, and this is particularly important for us, CCC, I think. Why? Because just last Sunday, we installed 43 new members. We're growing at a relatively fast pace, and we need good SOPs in place. It's just needed in order for the church to run well. But beyond that, beyond that, every single one of us need to be the kind of people who can run it well also, or else it won't matter how good these SOPs are. So this is what this chapter is about. What kind of people does the church need in order for it to run well, to protect the gospel, okay, and to stay united? Well, let's take a look at Paul and Timothy's life here as examples of these kinds of people. Take from Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 10. This is the Word of God. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that has been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, and they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of, the, of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Thus says the Lord, what kind of people do we need to have in our church, CCC, in order to protect gospel purity, unity, and mission? We see from this passage, from Paul and Timothy's life, we need people, one, who practice what they preach, two, who have sanctified gut instincts, and three, who's, com who's committed to the next right thing above long-term plans. All right, let's go through them, and I'll show you where I got that from the passage. First, we need people who practice what they preach. Okay, let's start in verse 1. So Paul continues his mission trip, right, preaching about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, to many places. And in verse 1, it says that in his journey, he came across a promising young man named Timothy. This Timothy later will become Paul's closest disciple and also one of prominent church leaders uh, back in the early church. When Paul met Timothy here, Timothy seems to already have 
some kind of ministry, and he's already known as a gospel leader of sorts, because verse 2 says that he was well spoken of in Lystra and Iconium. Probably already has something going on, some kind of ministry going on. So Paul, seeing potential in young Timothy as a gospel leader, took him in, verse 3 says. But he had won a crust. He said, look, you got potential, all right? And you're welcome to come with me if you want to continue doing this full-time in a more uh, effective way. But you got to get circumcised. Now, that should completely confuse the readers. Why? Because didn't just we go through this whole episode in in Acts chapter 15 about how Paul fought against the circumcision group, right? Paul said, look, you don't have to be circumcised to get saved. Didn't Paul just fight against this whole legalistic philosophy? He did. So then why is he asking Timothy to get circumcised here in chapter 16? Because he's asking Timothy to get circumcised for a totally different reason. He's not asking Timothy to get circumcised as a part of the requirement for his salvation, okay? He would never do that, which is what the circumcision group was saying, right? That's not what Paul's saying. Okay, so then why is Paul asking Timothy to get circumcised? He asked Timothy to do this so that Timothy could be a better gospel witness to the Jews in that region. That's what verse 3 says. Okay, let me explain. Look, if Timothy was 100% Jewish, sorry, was 100% Gentile, non-Jewish, Paul would have never asked him to get circumcised. Titus, another guy Paul took up along the way, was a Gentile. Paul never asked him to get circumcised. But he asked Timothy to get circumcised. Why? Look at verse 1. Because he was a half-Jew. Verse 1 says, Timothy was a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He's mixed. And that changes everything. Why? Because now, since he's mixed, there's going to be expectation for the Jewish community there for Timothy to be circumcised because he's half Jewish, or else he would have been considered an apostate Jew. He would have been considered somebody who betrayed the Judaic uh, uh, country and people and culture, and none of them would have ever listened to Timothy and wouldn't even have fellowship with him. And if that's the case, well, there goes his potential for gospel influence among the majority group of the time. So Paul said, look, if you want to do gospel work in this area, in this region, in a a bigger way, you don't have to, but if you want to, since you're half Jewish, there's no other way. You got to get circumcised or else your ministry will be dead before it even starts. And I I totally get it. As modern readers, we're reading this story and every cell in our body right now is probably screaming, don't do it. Timmy, right? You be you. It's your body, and if they can't accept you for who you are, that's on them. You never change. And I get that, and I agree with a lot of that, honestly. He shouldn't have to change. He really shouldn't. You're right. It's the early Jewish people's prejudice and, frankly, kind of racism back then that's causing Timothy to have to do all this. And Paul never forced to do it either, for him to do it either. But yet, he still did it. He did it for the sake of being able to reach the people in that culture with the message of the gospel. Timothy did the unimaginable. He got circumcised as a grown man with all the medical limitations of the day. He went through with it. Why? Because he's a man of integrity, because he practices what he preaches. What do I mean? Take a look at verse 4. 
Verse 4 says that Paul and Timothy went around these different churches, and stick with me, I'll connect. They went around different churches delivering this letter, right, about this big decision that they made in Acts chapter 15. Remember what that letter was about? It was about non-Jewish Christians. Not, you don't have to get circumcised, okay? But in order to not offend the Jews, you should give in to three Jewish traditions that they technically didn't have to give in to. Uh, the blood, meat, strangled animals, all that stuff, okay? What's Timothy doing here? He's doing the very thing that he's asking his fellow non-Jewish Christians to do. He gave in to a Jewish tradition that he technically didn't have to do, which is what? Circumcision. He's practicing what he preaches. Can you imagine a non-Jewish Christian reading this letter that Paul sent at the time and going, are you telling me that I have to give up eating medium-rare steaks to appease these Jewish Christians for the sake of gospel mission? Ah, so annoying. Timothy would have gone, oh, is that annoying? I got circumcised. That's where I'm at. <laughs> As an adult. You're telling me I have to throw away perfectly good chicken meat from the fridge because the chicken died by strangling? Ah, such a waste just to appease these Jewish Christians and protect gospel unity. How troublesome. Again, circumcised. <laughs> now, good thing I'm not Timothy because I totally the attitude I would have about the whole thing, right? Begrudging, resentful about it. Imagine the principle here without the resentment I just showed. That's Timothy. He did what he asked others to do. He practiced what he preaches, and that's how all Christians should be because your king was like that. Jesus didn't ask you to lay your life down for his until he first laid his life down for you. That is a basic worldview of Christianity. If we don't become people who practice what we preach, like Timothy here, then I don't care how biblical and good our SOPs are. It doesn't matter. Our gospel unity will be rocky. Our gospel purity will be merely theoretical. And our gospel mission will sound suspicious to the world. We got to practice what we preach. Are we doing that? That's the first thing we see here. Second thing is that Paul and Timothy, we see, had sanctified gut instincts. If we want to be able to maintain gospel purity, unity, and mission, we got to develop and grow our sanctified gut instincts. What do I mean? Let's go to our second point. Okay, so we're moving on. We're going to verses 6 to 8 now. We see that as Paul and Timothy continued on their journey to share Christ to different regions in that area, as they did that, they were attuned enough to the Holy Spirit to know how to make decisions about where to go and about where not to go. Look at verses 6 to 8. And they went through the region of Phrygia uh, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And Asia there is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Well, this is this weird scene where twice the Holy Spirit stopped Paul and Timothy from sharing the gospel in certain regions, which is weird in itself, right? The Holy Spirit is telling them not to preach the gospel? Well, that's weird. It is, and it isn't. Some of you may know this, that I, before I became a pastor, I worked at a campus ministry in the U.S., and I was on staff 
with this college ministry, and during my time on staff with them, I led a couple of college students on a summer mission trip to Nanjing, China. It was like an eight-week trip, something like that. And our task was to teach English there and also build relationships with people there so that we can share the gospel if the opportunity arises. Now, we got there, but to our surprise, when we got there, the very first thing that the leader of our ministry partner in, in Nanjing told us was this. He said, look, at times, you're going to have to hold yourself back from sharing the gospel. And we were like, wait, what? I thought the whole point of us coming here was to share the gospel. And he continued to explain, yes, it is. But here's the thing. Every year when you guys come to our place, there's always one or two overly zealous college students who just comes in with guns a-blazing, shares the gospel to everyone all the time without any kind of finesse at all, and every year we almost get kicked out because of you guys. And he said, we can't afford that this year. We've had enough warnings. Like if you just come in here guns a-blazing again, not knowing, not having a intuition but when to share the gospel, when to hold back, you're going to hurt our long-term gospel presence in the city, and you're going to hurt the mission as a whole. Sometimes, he said, and I quote, this is literally what he said, sometimes the Holy Spirit will tell you in your gut not to share the gospel. Not yet, not now. And when you sense that intuition, listen to him. That was a totally new concept for me. Don't share it. Don't share it, he said. Not because you're ashamed of it. Not because you're scared of persecution or pushback. Not because you're embarrassed of the gospel. No. Don't share it because you'll mess up our whole ministry and you're, you'll, ki- you'll kill our long-term gospel presence. We got to pace it well. So at times, when you sense the Holy Spirit telling you not to share the gospel, listen to him, and we're like, okay, but how do we know? Like, how do we know that? And he said, there's no manual for it. <laughs> There's no book that's going to spell it out to you. In this situation, do this. In that situation, do that. You just got to have to intuitively know. And I'm pretty convinced here that's what Paul and Timothy experienced in verses 6 to 8. When it said that the Holy Spirit forbid them from going here and forbid them from going there, I'm pretty sure that wasn't through explicit visual or verbal communication directly from the Spirit. How do I know that? Because when the Holy Spirit did speak to them visually and verbally, that instance was very specifically recorded in verse 9, which we'll get to later. But in verses 6 to 7, it wasn't recorded as visual and as verbal. Okay? So then how did the Holy Spirit interact with Paul and Timothy here in verses 6 to 8? Well, many commentaries agree that most likely it was through a combination of situational roadblocks or advice given to them from other Christians along the way. That's why the second time the Spirit spoke to them, it said the Spirit of Jesus, because most likely it was said in the name of Jesus. That's what most commentaries agree, okay? Roadblocks, people's advice, Christians' advice, they all they added all this up together, and it became a clear, instinctive gut feeling to avoid certain areas and not show the gospel there. Have you ever felt that way? where intuitively you know it's wrong or it's right. You can't quite pinpoint why, but you know deep inside your conscience and your gut it's wrong or right. This is what I like to call a sanctified gut feeling or a more commonly word, wisdom. Wisdom. Now, most Christians get nervous here because they're thinking I'm saying, listen to your heart. 
they think I'm becoming existentialist now. Just listen to your emotions. Whatever your emotions say is true. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Don't listen just fully to your heart because the heart is deceitful, okay? Just living life following your intuition is a very bad life plan. This is, though, what I would like to propose to you. Your relationship with God, it's like a marriage of sorts, isn't it? I've been married to Tati for almost 13 years, and I just somehow intuitively know more about how to navigate through things because I've known her longer. I've been in a relationship with her longer. Your relationship with God is like that as well. The more you grow in him, the more you know him, the more intuitively you know what he wants, what he doesn't want. Here's a decision-making pyramid that might make us less nervous, thinking that I'm just saying, listen to your heart. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. At the bottom of this decision-making pyramid is the Bible. Okay? Know your Bibles. How can you ever intuitively know the way to navigate around God's universe if you don't know the God who created the universe? It won't happen. How can I intuitively know what Tati wants if I don't know who she is? Who is God? What's he want? What's he want with you? Why is all this happening? You've got to know all that. And he's told you all that in the Bible. The thing is, we just don't bother to pick up and read it. His word must be the foundational worldview upon where you base every other decision upon. But second on that pyramid, get plugged into biblical gospel-centered local church. Let mature Christians in. I mean, really in. That's what Paul and Timothy most likely did here. They were humble enough to take advice from other Christians along the way in their journey about where to go, why, when. Pondering God's will for your life with other mature Christians who also believe in the Bible, that's how wisdom grows. That's how you grow your sanctified gut feeling. Okay, third, Bible, local church, other Christians. Third, Observe how the world works out there. There's a thing called common grace where there's truth out there as well. All truth is God's truth, even though it's not mentioned in the Bible. Is gravity true? Yes. Is it mentioned in the Bible? No. (laughs) It doesn't make it less true. All truth is God's truth. Learn how the world works. Learn about how your culture works. That's another thing Paul and Timothy most likely did here. They observed truths about how things in that area worked. And their ultimate goal, by the way, was get to Ephesus. So Galatian Bithynia is here. Ephesus is here. They wanted to get through there through these two ways. They knew how all that worked. But somehow, based on general observation, they decided that wasn't time yet. Okay? Bible. Advice from other mature gospel-centered Christians. General knowledge of how things work. And then the fourth thing to listen to at the very top of the pyramid is intuition. Your sanctified, visceral gut hunches that made Paul and Timothy decide, you know what, not Galatia, not Bithynia, not Ephesus, not yet, not now. Bible, advice from other gospel and Christians in a local church, general knowledge of how the world works, and intuition. Now, it's really important you don't flip this pyramid around. If your intuitions are at the bottom, everything's going to crash and burn, all right? You don't want to do that, but you also don't want to cancel intuitions altogether. God's given you emotions. God's given you instincts, and he wants to sanctify and renew that as well to his likeness. Okay. As you grow in those things, all of a sudden, I think what you'll find is that gray areas in your life will become less intimidating, and you'll finally be what the Bible says, wise.
All right. If we want to be a church that protects gospel purity, unity, and mission, on top of having solid gospel-centered SOPs, chapter 15, we got to be people like Paul and Timothy here in chapter 16 who practice what they preach, who have sanctified gut instincts, and lastly, who are committed to doing the next right thing, even if that messes up our long-term plans. Let's go to the last part of the passage. So, Holy Spirit redirected Paul and Timothy's plans twice, and in verse 9, finally told them where to go. But this time, the message was pretty clear, right? It wasn't done through these situational circumstances or sanctified gut feelings, like in verses 6 to 8. This time, it was explicitly visual and verbal, and is recorded as such. Go to verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Okay, pretty clear message there. So the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to preach the gospel at Macedonia. So they went. Now, you may not know this, but this move to Macedonia, if you look at it practically, was not a very strategic move. First of all, it was located in a totally different shoreline than Ephesus. Remember their ultimate goal? It was in a different shoreline, so they'd have to take a boat to get there and abandon their plan of reaching Ephesus, a very strategic city for the gospel to reach, anytime soon. Plus, the Macedonians back then were considered kind of at the bottom of the social ladder. If a church historian, a church historian said that if the Jews considered the Greeks to be heathens, the Greeks considered the Macedonians to be barbarians. <laughs> They're at the bottom of the level. So this was kind of confusing why God would want Paul and Timothy to go to Macedonia. It was out of the way. It didn't seem strategic. But they went still. They obeyed God still, even if by doing so, it messed up their plans. Look, I'm not saying that following God will always disrupt your plans. Or the more disruptive an act is to your plan, therefore it's more spiritual. It's not. That's silly. Nor am I saying that long-term plans are bad. Paul and Timothy had long-term plans, so they want to go to Ephesus. Very strategic. But what this passage is saying, I believe, is that there will be times in your life where the Holy Spirit will ask you to follow His leading at the expense of your own long-term plans. Now, I'm of the strong opinion that this leading won't be done by the visual verbal thing that he did in verse 9. It'll be done more through the decision-making pyramid that we talked about in point 2. If you want to talk more about why that's the case, we can talk later. But the point right now is those times will come when you'll know from what the Bible says, what mature Christian counsel says, from general knowledge of how things work in the world, and finally from your gut visceral feeling. You'll know what the right thing is to do. And at times, that right thing will be costly and disruptive to your own personal plans. And at that point, you're asked the question, is Jesus here just so that you can accomplish your plans? Or are you worshiping him because he's God? And I don't know about you, but for me, I often choose my own plans (laughs) at the expense of obedience. Because it's just hard, isn't it? Whether those moments for you happen in the realm of your work, how or why to make certain deals, or maybe that question for you happens in your area of personal finances, how to make money and how to spend it, or in our love lives, who to date, how to date. More often than not, in those crossroads, of choosing between immediate obedience and the long-term game plan, we sacrifice obedience, don't we? You know why? 
because we're scared. I know because I'm scared. I know that every single one of us here, if we're honest, are scared out of our minds. Because <laughs> we live in the world where nothing is safe. Nothing is certain. And everything is uncontrollable. So handing over decision-making power to a God who, if we're honest, we barely know, well, that's unbelievably scary. So to soothe our anxiety, we take back control, right? And we hold on to ultimate decision-making power ourselves to try and attain somewhat peace and security in our lives. But here's the thing. Let me ask you. In your experience, in the times in your life when you had ultimate decision-making power, in those moments, did you actually feel more peace? Did you actually feel less anxiety or more anxiety? When I used to work for a church under another pastor, I did feel a lot of anxiety because I didn't have much say about how things would go and how things would run. And I said to myself back then, you know what? If I can just be a pastor, you know, if I can just have decision-making power, then I'll finally be at peace. And now that I'm a pastor and I have decision-making power, do you think I'm at peace? No. (laughs) I'm freaking out even more. (laughs) I'm at peace, but, you know, you know what I mean. It doesn't work like that. Thinking that increased decision-making power also increases our sense of peace is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie that's going to make you waste your life chasing autonomy. Thinking that autonomy gives you peace, it does not. It cannot. And deep inside you know this to be true. Deep inside you know the world is way too unpredictable for you, and monopolizing decision-making power isn't the answer for peace. But you know what is? Peace, the Bible says, is not gained by autonomy. It's gained by knowing that the one who controls this unpredictable world is on your team. That's how peace is found. And that's what Paul and Timothy both knew here. They knew without a shadow of doubt that God was on their team. That's why they're able to say, Macedonia? That makes zero sense to me. But all right, we trust you. Timmy, pack your bags. We're going. They were able to prioritize God's commands over their long-term plans because never for a second did they doubt that God was on their team. Think about all the decisions you have to make in your life today. If you're anything like me, I'm sure there's at least one thing that you know God, through his word, is asking you to do, but you're not doing it. You're postponing it. And the reason you're not doing it is because you're still unsure that you can trust this God enough. It's too costly. What if he's wrong? What if he's doing it to harm me? What if this is some some kind of cosmic game he's playing? Paul and Timothy never doubted that. But why? How can they be so sure that God was on their team to where they were able to so quickly abandon their personal agendas for him? Because they knew something. They knew something that the rest of the world didn't know. What was it? They knew that the person who died for them a few years ago on a hill, on a cross, that person is this very same God who's asking them to go to Macedonia. Look at verse 7. Whose spirit was leading them? Verse 7 specifies. The spirit of Jesus. 
if you truly believe that the God who's telling you to give up your plans and obey him is also the one who gave up his life for you on a cross, what reason is there to suspect him? Both Timothy had the strength to practice what he preached, and Paul had deep trust in obeying God even when it disrupted his plans because on that cross, they both saw their king first show them the pains he's willing to go through for them and the deep commitment he had for them. He's worth it, Timothy said. He's worth every ounce of sacrifice. And he's trustworthy, Paul said. He died for me on a cross. He's trustworthy. Who is Jesus to you? If you think he's just a good moral teacher, if you think he's just a good example to follow, if you think he's just a religious leader, you'll never be like Paul and Timothy here. Your life will never change, and you'll always be hanging out at the fringes of his forgiveness, never truly knowing him. But if you believe that he is God who came down, took on flesh to die in your place, then your whole life will change its course. Then willingness to sacrifice for him, along with deep trust and obedience toward him, will follow. Who is Jesus to you? Let's pray. Father, the power of the gospel often falls flat in our hearts, frankly, because we still doubt what happened on the cross really did happen. Maybe he was a good teacher who got persecuted. Maybe he was a political religious uh, rebel who was thought of as dangerous, so he got crucified. Maybe there are all these other explanations. But if what the Bible says it's true, that he truly is the son who came down and took on flesh for us, he is God in human form and took on hands so that they can be nailed upon a cross, took on skin so that it can be torn apart, and took on blood so that it can be shed in our place. If that's true, how does that not mess us up? How does that not change our whole life trajectory and cause us to give all we have to this king? Help this church and all other churches in this city, in this country, Father, to be so entranced by this gospel that their sins are forgiven in Christ and let that develop a desire to sacrifice and lay down our lives for him and let that also develop a, a deep trust that the world can make no sense of because it came from heaven and died on a cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.